0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S. China Relations events podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Steve Orlands. I'm president of the National Committee on U.S. China Relations, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Tilo Heinemann and an outstanding uh, panel. This is the sixth year of the National Committee's partnership with the Rhodium Group. And what we try to do in terms of US-China relations is provide data to allow policymakers and the public to make decisions as to what the right policies and laws should be. This year, we have somewhat deviated from our model and have created uh, an analysis which we call an outbound investment screening regime for the United States. And it looks at what a potential law would do to US investment in China. Um, Tilo will first talk for around 20 minutes and then we'll be joined by the panelists who I will introduce when they come on screen. Tilo, as everybody knows, is a partner at the Rhodian Group um, and he leads the firm's work on global trade and investment and has been the lead in the partnership with the National Committee over these six years and has authored, uh, I think, 11 previous analyses of uh, US-China investment. But Tilo, thank you so much for the work. Thank you for shedding light when there's lots of smoke Um, and thank you for all of the work that you do with the committee.
2: Thank you, Steve, and uh, welcome everyone. Um, As Steve just mentioned, uh, the the mission of uh, the US-China Investment uh, Project uh, is uh, to provide data and objective analysis on on US-China investment dynamics uh, to inform policymakers, uh, businesses, and the broader uh, public. Uh, And uh, each year, we publish regular data updates uh, and then occasionally, uh, we also uh, put together special reports on important issues uh, pertinent to uh, US-China capital flows. Today, uh, we want to discuss a uh, new and potentially really uh, important policy initiative that could have a significant impact on uh, future US-China investment relations, namely a potential outbound investment review mechanisms here in the United States targeting China and other uh, so-called countries uh, of concern. Uh, This morning, we have released a short background report that provides uh, context on uh, the uh, uh, legislation, uh, which you can find on our website. And I will take the next 20 minutes or so to uh, summarize the highlights of that report before we head into uh, the panel discussion. Great. Looks like uh, I have a. deck here. Uh, Could we go to the next slide, please? Fantastic. Great. Um, So I'd like to start um, with uh, this historical perspective um, that illustrates just how much policy and policy changes have driven and have shaped US-China investment flows uh, over the past um, um, two decades. Uh, So this this slide here shows uh, the past two decades of US-China direct investment as well as venture capital investment, uh, and um, a few of the most important policy markers in green here. So all the way to the left-hand side, of course, uh, it was uh, a combination of China's opening up uh, FDI reforms and liberal US economic policies, uh, W2 accession, that fueled the initial rise of US FDI uh, into China. About a decade later, uh, you can see the the red bars uh, popping up, uh, which uh, was really driven by uh, the liberalization of Chinese outbound FDI policies, uh, which has boosted Chinese outbound FDI into the US and globally. And then a few years later, uh, it was the reversal uh, of these Chinese outbound FDI or backpedaling on these uh, liberal Chinese outbound FDI policies that have uh, triggered a major drop again in this red bar since 2017. also contributed to that drop was the overhaul uh, of uh, U.S. inbound FDI policies, namely the so-called FERMA legislation in 2018, which uh, um, reformed uh, the uh, inbound FDI review mechanism in the U.S. Uh, And as we head into uh, 2022, uh, there is now additional U.S. policy at the horizon namely a new mechanism to scrutinize American outbound investment uh, to China. uh, And uh, we wanna now dive a little bit deeper into uh, what has been driving uh, these policies and what the potential impact could be. Next slide, please. Um, So I wanna start with a little bit of background uh, on, uh, uh, on what's driving this new legislation. Uh, And um, sort of at the core, these these new proposals that we're seeing out there are really based on two long-standing concerns in Washington uh, that have received additional traction in the context of increasing uh, U.S.-China competition or great power competition, if you want. Next slide, please. Um, The first long-standing concern uh, is that U.S. investment uh, in China could facilitate the transfer or the build-up of technology and know-how that could, in the long run, strengthen China's civil and military capabilities to the detriment of the United States. And again, these concerns date really back to the 1990s or even 1980s, uh, when Congress was concerned about um, joint venture requirements, local content requirements. Um, but in the past decade, uh, they have multiplied because of a number of reasons. Number one, China's technology development, of course, getting China closer to uh the cutting edge in many uh, new and emerging technologies that have potential um, dual use applications. Um, We've seen a big expansion uh, of US firms innovation footprint in China. Um, So it's not just about joint ventures anymore or local content requirements, but US investors have become an active part of uh, China's innovation system. Um, In our data set alone, we have more than $25 billion in uh, semiconductor and other ICT investment into China since 2010. Uh, We have more than 50 billion of US startup financing over the past two decades, including in emerging technologies with potential dual use. And right now we're at about four to $5 billion of annual uh, US R&D investments, uh, R&D expenditures in China. So US companies, Uh, uh, spend about four to five billion a year in China on R&D. And then last but not least, of course, what amplifies uh, and ties these concerns together is the existence of uh, a uh, very uh, deep civil military fusion program uh, in China and uh, the lack of rule of law, which makes it very, very difficult or some say impossible for Chinese firms to keep that homegrown Chinese technology away from uh, um, the military and military use. Um, Next slide please. Um, A second um, long um, standing concern uh, that is getting more and more traction in recent years is the outsourcing of critical production capacity to China. Uh, Initially these offshoring concerns have mostly focused on, uh, on the labor and social impacts, but they're now really centered around supply chain security. So the ability of the United States to ensure access to uh, critical goods and services in the face of um, certain disruptions arising from conflict, um, natural disasters, uh, economic coercion, and the likes. Uh, And I'd say two things have really amplified those concerns over the last um, decade or even five years, if you want to narrow it down. Number one, um, China is now really dominating certain parts of the supply chain through both its natural comparative advantage, um, but in also the use of subsidies, industrial policies, and other measures um, that have um, gotten China to a point where it now occupies a significant market share, not just in those uh, comparative advantage areas, but also in areas in which it does not have a comparative advantage. And then second, um, we have some clear evidence that China has used uh, this kind of supply chain leverage both as a carrot and a stick in its relations with other countries. We have seen disputes with Australia, South Korea, Japan, and others in which Beijing has um, either threatened or imposed boycotts or blocked access to um, key uh, inputs uh, and and components. And certainly uh, the global pandemic has further aggravated uh, these types of concerns about um, reliance on Chinese suppliers. Um, We can dive into some of these concerns a little later on during the panel, but I think those are the two uh, main important um, um, pillars of concerns that are driving uh, this um, legislative agenda. Next slide, please. Um, So how have these concerns manifested themselves in Washington? Next slide, please. Um, Over the past uh, two years, we've seen a series a long series of legislative proposals uh, and executive orders in response to these concerns about tech transfer and critical capabilities. This is not the full list, this is just a, uh, a small selection uh, of some of the most important policies that have either been uh, enacted or are currently pending. Um, and I've kind of bucketed them into three areas. The first one uh, on top here uh, are broader China related legislative proposals. Uh, like uh, like USICA and uh, just this week, uh, we have uh, the House version of that, the America Competes Act. Uh, we have uh, a number of supply chain reshoring proposals, including the CHIPS Act. Um, and then uh, last but not least, we have a number of um, export control uh, initiatives and overhauls. And uh, what we wanna focus on today is the one in red, is the National Critical Capabilities Defense Act, which is a uh, bilateral piece of legislation Uh, introduced by um, Senators Cornyn uh, and uh, Casey. And uh, if you move to the next slide, I have a a short overview of what that piece of legislation specifically means. Um, The bill would basically establish an interagency committee led by USTR to review certain U.S. outbound investments, so outbound investments by American companies or foreign companies based in the U.S., uh, and it would scrutinize transactions that would shift or relocate to a country of concern or transfer to an entity of concern, the design, development, manufacture of critical capabilities. Um, one important feature is that there is a mandatory notification provision for uh, covered industries and transactions. So a very important element of the bill is to create some additional transparency around uh, these uh critical capabilities, supply chain dependencies, uh, and and some some better data for US government agencies to um, um, track um, offshoring uh, dynamics. Um, If that committee um, ultimately determines that a transaction poses uh, a risk to critical capabilities, it can either uh, recommend the president to block it, um, or it can also recommend to uh, Congress to establish or expand specific programs to support the supply of critical capability in that area connected to the transaction. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, In addition to uh, this broader process, the bill, the current version of the uh, NCCDA bill also specifies a list of critical capabilities, which you can see on the left-hand side here, and uh, a list of additional industries uh, for review. Um, Most of those, as you can see, are relatively narrow and not surprising. So of course, you have defense on there uh, and you have um, certain um, disaster relief uh, um, dimensions. But it also includes fairly broad categories like transportation uh, and critical infrastructure, which um, are, as we can see in a minute, not quite narrowly defined. Um, so we understand that the bill is still a work in progress. But as I mentioned earlier, uh, we uh, just had uh, a House version of uh, the America Competes Act uh, come out uh, this week. Uh, and the latest version of this um, Cornyn-Casey um, bill um, is in that legislative proposal, uh, which is now uh, in the House. and um, um, lawmakers will work through it over the next weeks and months and um, we certainly uh, can take a closer look during the panel on how this may play out over the next uh, uh, few weeks. Uh, Next slide please. Um, Last thing we try to do in our report is uh, to provide uh, some initial perspectives on the implications of such a bill An impact assessment is extremely difficult because uh, the uh, impacts of the bill or the regime itself will depend on the ultimate legislative text as well as the detailed implementation rules uh, and the uh, interpretation of the law by the executive branch and regulators. But in the spirit of our mission here to provide some data and objective economic analysis for policymakers, Uh, we have attempted to uh, put a few data points and um, perspectives together, uh, which we hope can serve as a starting point uh, for discussing uh, uh, the implications for U.S.-China capital flows, U.S. companies uh, in the global economy, and then uh, global economic governance uh, more broadly. Um, So, starting with the impact on uh, U.S. FDI in China, if you could move to the next slide, please. The first exercise we have um, undertaken is uh, um, trying to answer the question, uh, what would the NCCDA legislation mean for uh, U.S. investment, U.S. companies in China? So what we've done is we've taken our um, historical data set of more than 6,000 individual U.S. FDI transactions in China uh, to determine how many transactions uh, occurred in sectors or activities relevant to the national critical capability as defined under the bill. Uh, And as you can see here, uh, the results are quite um, um, expansive. Um, We find that um, in its current form, um, the bill would have potentially covered uh, about 43% of historical US FDI transactions into China in volume terms and about 45% of US FDI into uh, China over the past um, uh, two decades, in value terms, so a fairly large share. Um,
1: beyond what's that, what's that total value, Tilo? Over uh, the over total accumulated value, I guess not mark to market. The total the, value
2: um, that we have in our database is about 160 billion, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in in that in that time frame. So that is. The impact, a rough impact assessment in terms of new transactions, um, beyond the potential impact on new investment. Um, one uh, one dimension that we think has not gotten enough attention right now is what effect such legislation may have on existing U.S. operations uh, in China. Um, although the, the screening mechanism itself is not going to be applied retroactively. Uh, scrutiny could put additional pressure on existing US operations in China, and ultimately even force certain firms to reduce or divest uh, their operations. Um, that could occur through um, follow-on follow investment, retrofitting or upgrading uh, not being approved. Uh, it could uh, trickle through uh, uh, lower competitiveness of US companies. Uh, in the Chinese market uh, due to higher transaction costs, regulatory costs, compliance costs, and then certainly one dimension we can't foresee yet is possible retaliation uh, uh, from Beijing uh, against American companies in response to um, uh, a uh, 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 a new regime like that. Um, now, some of the Hill may say, yes, that's great, that's exactly what we want to achieve with this, but um, it is really important uh, to not forget that these U.S. operations in China uh, currently generate um, you know, five to 600 billion in annual profits for American companies, which ultimately all contribute to R&D budgets and other functions that are very, very important for U.S. prosperity, and then ultimately uh, U.S. national security. So really important to broaden the horizon there a little bit and think about those um, second-order impacts. Next slide, please. Um, A a second argument um, one needs to uh, consider is how an outbound investment screening regime may impact U.S. companies or the U.S. economy um, as a whole. Uh, And uh, we've put together a few numbers to to show um, how uh, the U.S. was historically a leader uh, of uh, liberal global investment policies uh, and that That leadership has been one reason uh, for the US having far, far more uh, inbound and outbound FDI um, stocks than any other country on the planet, which you can see here on the slide, almost 10, almost 20 trillion dollars in combined inbound and outbound FDI stock, far, far, far more than any other economy um, out there. So an outbound investment screening regime would represent a major break from that um, liberal investment open investment tradition uh and uh, it if the legislation is enacted ultimately the the us would be one of only a handful of advanced economies with industry specific outbound investment restrictions um i think um, japan has a, a few a few um requirements south korea has them and um, um i guess there's uh, taiwan as well who has um um such provisions, but um, other than that, the U.S. would be the only uh, large OECD economy uh, that um, has such a regime in place. And if not designed in a targeted, predictable manner, this change, of course, could negatively impact uh, the global competitiveness of U.S. companies in the affected industries, and then vice versa, because the legislation would presumably also apply to foreign companies' um, operations in the U.S., It could also undermine the attractiveness of the United States as an investment location on the inbound side, um, if the legislation limits the global deployment of US-based operations or uh, any um, IP uh, and and assets associated with those US-based operations. Uh, Next and last slide, please. Um, Finally, um, one last dimension that, we think is important to consider is uh, what what such change could mean for uh, the global investment uh, policy dimension. Um, We have just gone, and that's what this chart here is showing, through a major, major overhaul of global uh, inward FDI uh, policies, um, really across the globe, uh, which has been uh, in part driven by concerns about China, in part by the pandemic. Um, a decision by the U.S. to introduce an outbound FDI screening mechanism might encourage um, other countries, U.S. allies, to consider similar steps, which on the one hand could help coordination uh, on um, certain national security questions, but of course in a worst case scenario could also lead to another wave of uh, less liberal investment policies uh, that creates additional regulatory barriers for for cross-border investment flows globally, which is bad news from uh, from an open investment perspective. And certainly if you remember the last chart that I showed, um, um, the companies that would suffer most from that would be U.S. multinationals. Um, There is of course also a possibility that other countries uh, could view U.S. up on investment restrictions as going too far uh, and not follow suit, uh, in which case uh, that could complicate rather than enhance multilateral coordination uh, in responding to some of the economic and national security challenges posed by China. Uh, And certainly um, one um, specific area to watch is uh, the slowly um, um, unfolding collaboration, the transatlantic collaboration between Europe and the US uh, uh, on China. Um, uh, I would be very surprised if, Uh, proposals like this would be um, picked up in the European context, so it could really cause additional friction here uh, for um, these multilateral uh, transatlantic or um, um, OECD economy coordination with respect to China. I will pause here. Um, Thank you for your attention. Uh, We will now switch over to our panel discussion to uh, drill down on some of these uh, uh, areas and questions in more detail. Uh, back to you, Steve, uh, to uh, kick us off on that.
1: Great. If the uh, panelists can turn on their videos, that would be terrific. Uh, you have got their bios, so I won't go over everything. You know, Giovanna is at the law firm of Morgan Lewis and runs their uh, international trade and national security practice. Uh, Nargiza, is that correct, um, is at the Rhodium Group and is in DC and runs and is part of their China Projects team. And Eric Jung, who we know from his days working in insurance over many decades um, in Shanghai, is now the president of the, uh, Shanghai, the AmCham Shanghai. Um, so wonderful to have all three of you. Uh, let me start with Giovanna. Um, Is this a solution, looking for a problem? What is really the problem? Uh, Do we have a lot of examples of US investment in China um, jeopardizing national security of the United States?
3: Well, so thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here. And that's a very insightful question, Steve, because I think it depends upon the perspective that you bring to the table. So who is looking to define that problem? If you talk to agencies in the US government that have defense, national security, and intelligence equities, you're likely to hear the answer that the development of indigenous capability in China, their concept of civil military fusion, the encouragement and financing by the Chinese government of the increased enhanced development of these industries and the public policies that have been articulated by china develop a framework that raises some concerns and so those communities are going to look at the players that are contributing to that and to the extent that we have either technology transfer product establishment of ventures or other joint collaborations. And it doesn't have to be industry. Could also be universities, could be specific individuals. I think that suddenly puts together a picture that raises some concerns because of a lack of visibility. The majority of those types of activities don't have clarity and transparency. Even if you were to look at export control laws, the way the laws are established, especially the export administration regulations, the majority of the exports, according to the Bureau of Industry and Security's annual reports are actually done through license exceptions. So no one has to inform the US government of what gets transferred. It's simply the invocation of an exception. So I think there could be some concerns as you look at certain stakeholders' perspectives.
1: The the national security folks in the U.S. government are paid to think about those problems. If you if you try and weigh the national security concerns versus what your clients would then the additional bureaucratic impediments that they would have in making investments in China, where do you come out worth it?
3: So I think it's actually a question for the clients, because as a counselor, I'm giving a legal analysis on it. But I think the issue becomes if those, as you call them, impediments, if the requirements and regulatory requirements have existed since the founding of most countries. So industry is used to being regulated in some fashion. I think um, a regulatory framework that does not meet an objective, Steve, would be fairly difficult to justify because it is a potential impediment that doesn't meet an objective. If, however, there was a clearly articulated objective and a framework designed to meet it, then I think just like paying taxes, having to get patent applications through the system to get a patent, having to go through the government contracts process or Hart-Scott-Rodino, it becomes built into the uh, conduct of business. Otherwise, I think you have to look a little bit more carefully.
1: Eric, how would it affect your members? How would it affect your membership if they had, I mean, General Motors is certainly a member of of, um, Shanghai AmCham. If they needed to increase their investment and they had to go through a regulatory process in the United States.
4: Well, obviously there are a lot of uncertainties at this point as Tilo pointed out that uh over the past particularly 20 years since China joined the WTO, uh, many of American companies have invested in this market. And, and now over half of them, at, at least based on our membership survey there, sell to the China market, right? This is the market for them. And that's one factor to be, to be considered. The other one is this market is becoming very innovative for automakers like GM, they, they wanted to be here, uh, not only to sell, you know, cars, uh, Tesla and and, and uh, Buick and so forth to the China market, but also they wanted to tap into the uh, the uh, innovation space. Uh, uh, Chinese consumers are demanding for very innovative products and, and digital plays a major role in this. So when you look at, Industries like EV, electric vehicle industry, China is leading the way. So if you uh, ask American automakers to stay away from the China market, not only you are going to lose a huge potential market for U.S. automakers, but also it's not going to help U.S. automakers in terms of innovation because they will love to work with Chinese companies to create to commercialize new products, new parts, new auto cars for the China market, and eventually to sell those products to the rest of the world. So in my view, uh, if we're going in this direction in terms of uh, screening outbound investment by having very vague uh, criteria for these so-called critical capabilities, this will make US companies uh, less competitive.
1: Nargiza, where do we stand on this legislation? I mean, Tilo has described it. It's 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 um, it's being talked about. What's the timeline? Will it be passed? What's your what's your view on where we're going to go with this? Uh,
0: thanks, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. I think uh, you know the uh, the uh, honest but unfortunate answer is it depends, and it depends on many things. Certainly, the first threshold. Um, is to pass the bill. And I see no reason why the House would not pass the bill, probably quite quickly. Um, And when and if it does, uh, both chambers will have to negotiate to resolve the differences. There are some pretty obvious differences between the Senate version of the bill and the version that the House has passed, not least of which is, of course, the inclusion of this um, this particular piece of legislation within uh, America Competes Act. And that will require intense negotiation. Uh, If we think back uh, over many years of congressional action um, in this particular space, you know, original firma bill included uh, an element that would have involved an outbound investment screening mechanism. And that was not in the final version because there was such intense negotiations, intense opposition. It couldn't clear the threshold. So I think, you know, uh, House and Senate will have a lot of negotiating that they have to do uh, before we see the final version of this bill pass.
1: So no prediction as to whether or when?
0: Think of who we're betting people, but probably not for this audience.
1: The, um, am I correct in stating that America has never had anything like this in terms of restricting, outbound, having an approval process for outbound investment? What is so different about the relationship with China that we should look at doing something that we've historically never done, and as Tilo's slide, points out, uh, we have been the bright example of inward and outward FDI since World War II. Why mess with something that's worked pretty well? What's what's so different here? Any of you, or Giovanna, that was most, I was thinking of you as I asked that
3: (laughs) question. So, um, So let me start with your last comment about it's worked so well. I think there's a number of different views on whether things have worked well. I think there are some things that people believe have worked well. And then I think part of the reason we're here having this discussion is because there's been some indication that things have not worked well. I think in response to your question, Steve, there haven't been in my understanding any formal outbound type reviews, but there have been informal views. U.S. government policies um, and regulatory constructs that have disincentivized, for example, certain types of foreign investments, companies are making decisions on the basis of those types of disincentives. And to a certain extent that does constitute a form of impediment, if you will, to outbound investment. I think we're at a point now though, and it's very interesting when you looked at the draft legislation, both the Senate side and the competes act, as Nargiza was saying, it doesn't actually say China, it says foreign adversaries. And foreign adversaries, that wonderful term, not really concretely defined, uh, is open to interpretation and it is more than one country. I think we hear a lot more about China because of the great power competition and the way in which the relationship has developed. But it's a broader bill in this sense. And I think it's identifying and highlighting a broader set of issues. Where have been the failures?
1: In other words, we're talking about the failures. So we're needing to fix a system and put in place more regulatory burdens on US companies. Talk somewhat about the failures where we have effectively enabled the China military industrial complex to, to compete more with us as a result of US investment. Technology, we have rules on tech, as you, in your practice experience, (laughs) we have have rules on technology transfer.
3: Right, but the devil is in the details, Steve. So I think the biggest problem has been the shift to lack of visibility. Uh, Let me just talk two seconds because I think Nargiza has some some comments. Uh, Our US export control regimes are set up to not be prohibitions I leave the sanctions regimes to the side so our export uh, administration act. uh, Regulations administered by commerce and our Department of State international traffic and arms regulations, as well as our nuclear regs are all designed to set up visibility and permissions. But what has happened over the years is the visibility has shrunk because the permissions have become self-effectuating or self-effective. So if I no longer have to advise a government agency to obtain permission to transfer, there is no manner in which the U.S. government is able to discover, absent moving a product, which is not technology because a product has to cross a border, and our custom service will track it. But technology is evanescent, goes by email, is out of the cloud, and there is no mechanism to have visibility into what is transferred. And I think that loss of visibility and accountability has contributed to transfers occurring that have now shifted the balance between China and the United States.
0: And uh, just to add to that point, I think uh, two important uh, developments to keep in mind to set the broader context. First, the complexity of technology has changed dramatically. So when a lot of the rulemaking was originally established, uh, a piece of technology was more or less whole on itself, as Javan has mentioned. Now it's sort of evanescent, you can just put it in an email. So the complexity of it means that it becomes increasingly more difficult to separate what is civilian from what is military, and of course, so many technologies nowadays are inherently dual use, and that's not a problem that's unique to technologies that are being developed in China or in the United States or anywhere else. So that's one. The second one is the complexity of the supply chains. It used to be that you knew where your widgets and gadgets came from, but now the global distribution, assembly, packaging, testing, it means that every node in your supply chain is potentially vulnerable to exploitation, It means that it could be uh, just a product defect, so a quality issue, but either way for the United States government to be able to scrutinize critical supply chains. And if we go back to this piece of legislation, right, the supply chain security is at at the core of it. If you go back to that and sort of start thinking about how can the government ensure um, that the supply chain is protected, it needs to have visibility into what that supply chain is. Uh, An important part of the effort Um, that we've seen undertaken in Congress, and certainly within the two administrations, most recently the bipartisan effort. Uh, It's tried to understand uh, what is going on, just educate itself to gain access to the information that it currently lacks.
2: Steve, maybe just one one last uh, more historical uh, uh, comment uh, since you said uh, the U.S. hasn't had that in place, uh, um, probably fair to say, since... uh, um, shortly after World War II, uh, but historically speaking, um, you know, we we have to just also recognize China is a very unique case, right? And there are unique concerns associated with China in terms of its particular economic system, in terms of its size and its uh, situation as a non allied economy, right? We never had a case like that before in the past fifty years. Japan was a very different case, um, and um, so. Um, In the broader context, um, I I would also tie it back to uh, the evolution of China, Chinese practices, uh, and some concerns about the differences in in the U.S. versus uh, the Chinese system. And uh, I would broaden it out uh, within market economies uh, under the U.S. security umbrella, um, that it's not just a a tendency we're seeing uh, in the U.S., but it's a very broad-based adjustment of some of these historical liberal economic policies.
1: Eric, talk about some of the, I mean, the report focuses, obviously it has this very interesting kind of analysis, as Tilo talked about, of the percentage of 43% of US investment in China. So neighborhood of a hundred plus billion dollars would have been subject to this review. Um, The report doesn't, Tilo made reference to it, but doesn't talk a lot about the benefits of U.S. investment to not only China, but to the United States. Can you talk about that also to, you know, how investors kind of bring their values, bring sometimes U.S. products, you know, they, they import U.S. products into China that go into their finished product for distribution. Can you talk about some of those? Because I think that to some degree, uh, this bill doesn't, properly take into account those issues?
4: Yeah, certainly Steve. Uh, when you look back you know, just 20 years since China joined the WTO, uh, China has uh, become increasingly integrated with the rest of the world in this more free kind of trade world system, which I believe, uh, and our, many of our members believe is in the best interest of the US and in the world. Uh, to have China as part of a responsible member of the global community, uh, that's good for for the world and certainly for the US. And and when you look at China today, and we're actually gonna celebrate, well, commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai Communique, which was signed 50 years ago uh, by President Nixon and, and Premier Zhou Enlai. And China has come a long way since then, and certainly, since the uh, China joined the WTO. And when you look outside of my windows here, you see so many American brands there. I could see City here, uh, certainly GM, Tesla, Disney is a major player in this market. You, you see the integration, the benefit of integration between China and the rest of the world, certainly including the US. And I think uh, in that sense, it, it's a very positive development. And obviously, uh, we have two buckets of, of, of uh, questions about the US and China bilateral relations when, which one is competition and the other is cooperation. And I hope and our members certainly hope that uh, we can continue uh, to work with China and find common ground, uh, particularly uh, in our case in commercial space, find ways to engage China to work with them certainly this is becoming a very, very important market, consumer market for U.S. companies. Based on our surveys, very consistently, uh, China is regarded as one of the top, at least top three strategic markets for U.S. companies. So uh, when we think about a outbound investment screening mechanism, uh, we need to keep that in mind as well. And how uh, that kind of regime will have an impact on on, uh, the future of these two countries. And I think uh, uh, we need to be careful and certainly uh, we have existing mechanisms such as export controls, economic sanctions, and and, uh, is it possible to take a look at the existing mechanism rather than recreating a whole new set of uh, uh, mechanism which will be unprecedented.
1: Markiza, will the bill contain a provision which subjects its enforcement to uh, or the creation of this mechanism to a some multilateral agreement? So if the EU, the Japanese and the Koreans don't do it and we do do it, it's kind of like what? It just is going to, it's so anti-competitive for American companies, it kind of, it doesn't make any sense. Um, is, Is there talk about kind of amending it to including some kind of contingent creation on whether we can get our allies and friends to work with
0: us? So the current language of the bill does contain a provision that directs the USDR, as the chairperson of this committee, it would seek to establish, to coordinate uh, multilaterally with allies and partners to address precisely sort of the concern you're raising, which is that the lack of coordination could disadvantage one party over the other, or just create a lot of incoherence, which unfortunately is a natural consequence sometimes in, in these types of rulemaking. Um It is not a contingent or a triggered situation, right? So it does not actually make uh, U.S. action in this event contingent on coordination with allies and partners. It just encourages that.
1: Giovanna, our, our export controls, do we coordinate with our allies? You know, in the old days, when I started mm-hmm. in this business, we had COCOM. you know, we, we yes. you know, on the, the exports yeah. to the, so, the Soviet yeah. Union, That's we right. coordinated with the, the Europeans and the Brits and the japanese that if we weren't going to we couldn't export something then nobody could export
3: right right so we do have multilateral coordination certainly on the commerce department side under the export administration regulations that is premised if you uh, listen to the management and leadership of, B- of the bureau of industry and security it is a multilateral based regime it does have the capability though for certain circumstances for some unilateral controls And the export administration regulations do have certain types of technology, product, software, equipment, and materials that are subject to controls unilaterally. But the majority of it is based on Wassenauer, which was the replacement of COCOM, and also the Nuclear Suppliers Group, the Australia Group, Missile Technology Control Regime. And on the State Department and the nuclear side as well, we do have similar systems, although under the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, because it is defense and intelligence and military and uh, focused in those areas, there is a broader capacity to exercise unilateral control because of sovereign uh, concerns and issues. Same thing on the nuclear side, although there on the nuclear side, you have one, two, three agreements. You have part 810, which is primarily premised on exchanges multilaterally. So there are a lot of multilateral premises in the export uh, regimes. But but let me observe, multilateral regimes are uh, measured, considered, but some would say they are plotting in the sense that all that coordination and all that interaction takes time and people have to think about things, but technology doesn't stop for that. And whether you're looking at Moore's law or something else, it continues to progress. And by the time the multilateral regimes make a decision, the controls might be outdated. And that has always been a risk with that type of approach.
1: How do you think about the Chinese reaction? When I thought about, I will ask that question, but when I thought about it, I said, well, the Chinese do this anyhow. So <laughs> they don't have much basis to object, but I don't know. Eric, how would you think the Chinese would respond if this bill gets passed and enacted? Well, I think um, you
4: know, based on our experience in the past, um, you know, China, could go to a third country for for, uh, collaboration. And so it really would depend on whether European countries and Japan and so forth would work with the US in terms of uh, implementing this uh, new regime of uh, outflow, outbound investment assessment. Uh, Because in the past, uh, when the US decided not to export a certain technology to China, uh, China could, Uh, turn to another country in Europe, for instance, to get a similar technology. So at the end of the day, this may uh, defeat the purpose of of this new uh, regime. So that's one possibility. Now, the other one certainly is self-reliance. This might hasten the process for, for China to go back to the old way of thinking, we have to rely on myself now, so which uh, would not be good for, for either for China or for the rest of the world. So we would like to see uh, China continue to be integrated with the rest of the world rather than creating its, its own kind of uh, unique system of, of operations. So we would like to encourage China to continue to work uh, with the rest of the world to become a more responsible uh, player in the world stage. But this, if you try to isolate China in that way, this would not be helpful. Giovanna, Nargiza, Tilo, anything to
1: add
2: on that?
3: So uh, I agree with Eric's comments that the balance of equities is between the consequences of not integrating and the the results of integrating. I I do think uh, if we look at what China has done over the last two years, in response to actions taken by the United States and other countries. They've developed their own unreliable list. Uh, They've developed their own anti-foreign sanctions laws. Uh, To a certain extent, that brings them into the integrated world because a lot of countries have those types of laws. But at the same time, it is a reaction to what other sovereign countries have done. And I think one of the questions the US and partners and allies have to ask Uh, Are we prepared for those types of legal reactions that could occur? And then if those do occur and they get implemented, what are the consequences of that implementation? So it becomes a bit of a domino effect. Yeah.
2: Um, I think, aside from that broader geopolitical perspective, there may be a few specific areas, depending on how how, uh, the law is designed that will be especially uh, complicated. And and one of them certainly is uh, increased transparency into uh, anything that sits in China, right? China has um, uh, discovered that uh, the protection of data and cross-border data flows is a, is a national security matter. Uh, and as Joanna mentioned, if one of the main purposes of this bill is to create additional transparency around what U.S. companies are doing in China, to what extent uh, uh, the U.S. depends on Chinese uh, um, production, um, I-, I can imagine that that will put a lot of companies in a very difficult position if they are now forced to share some of that information on their Chinese operations uh, with uh, the U.S. government through mandatory filings. So there are a few of these um, dimensions that could really be um, um, fairly concerning uh, to to Beijing and and could 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 be very damaging potentially to uh, certain types of um, um, U.S. companies.
1: What mechanisms exist already today that could achieve the goals that this legislation through better enforcement that this legislation? attempts to achieve. Giovanna, you're probably the best one on that.
3: That is the $64,000 question. We have a lot of laws out there. I I think the whole reason we're discussing this is because those laws don't seem to have been as effective. So I don't believe export controls can replace this uh, view because one, export controls really deal more in a transaction by transaction basis. I want to sell this product to this party in this country for this purpose, which is different than asking the question of what if I sell the capacity to make that product? What if I change the ownership of the producer? That is not a question that export control laws address in the licensing process. They might look at that from the reliability of the recipient to say, do they already have the capacity such that this unique single transfer will not alter the balance? But they do not look at that ownership. Neither do our sanctions laws. Our Defense Production Act does not look at that. IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, National Emergencies Act. So in that unique circumstance, we do not really have, at least of what I'm aware, a particular law that is focused on what happens if we change the ownership and control of our capacity. I think CFIUS is the closest mechanism we have, the FIRMA, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, but FIRMA like the export laws and CFIUS like the export laws is a balance because no government organization can look at the 20 to 40,000 investments that cross-border investments that occur yearly. And so y- you have some balances, but but even there it's not an outbound investment regime. So it doesn't look at the situation in the same way. So apologies for the long-winded answer. I don't think there is anything out there right now.
1: But isn't most of the risk occurred through, occur through technology transfer not for the actual ownership interest.
3: Well, let me ask, let me respond to your question with a question back to you. Is it the same if I take my technology, transfer it overseas, and indigenous capability is developed? Or what happens if I simply pay to build the facility and extremely intelligent people develop the indigenous capability? So, on the first situation, the export laws might look at it, assuming I don't have the loss of visibility through the way the licensing mechanism is established. But in the latter, there's nobody that looks at that financing and establishing the facility that allows people who, for example, may have studied or worked with US or non-US companies and carry that knowledge with them to develop the capacity indigenously. And I think it's that particular gap that people are, currently examining as to whether the visibility is needed to meet some of the concerns that certain stakeholders in the government have. Interesting.
1: Um, Ken Jarrett, Eric, one of your predecessors, um, asked, I guess this is is for Nargiza, is it likely the legislation's definition of outbound investment will include reinvested RMB profits of US companies already operating in China.
0: So I think part of what Congress is doing here is leaving a lot of the interpretation and definitions up to the executive branch when the legislation gets implemented. That's a very standard process, right? We know that before um after uh, a law is signed, uh, there is a consultative process where Various stakeholders, interested parties, businesses, et cetera, et cetera, are allowed to submit uh, responses in response to solicitations uh, that the responsible agency would issue. And I think that is going to be certainly one of the core questions that will need to be addressed.
1: Another question for you, which is, is it possible the review mechanisms will also consider human rights issues? Uh, For instance, proposed investments in Xinjiang or related to surveillance technology?
0: So the language of the bill as it stands right now does not make reference to human rights. Uh, We know that there are other pieces of legislation which have actually become law, uh, for example, um, uh, which do address that issue, but we don't see that in the current text.
2: But there are, sorry to interject here really quickly, I think there is a provision in there right now that allows certain members of Congress to initiate reviews, right? right. Which could be a potential backdoor to introduce some of these questions into the process. Again, uh, depending on final text and implementation, but it, it could potentially happen through that way.
1: This is for everyone on the panel and Tilo. Is there any way we can kind of think about making this a productive issue between the United States and China? That we use this, the executive branch uses this bill to begin to talk to the Chinese about how we can bilaterally agree on what restrictions we put on FDI? That, you know, the Chinese are continually, continually reducing their negative list um you know what you cannot invest in they're they're ending equity caps and here we are kind of putting you know with firma with us we're 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 building higher walls in a lot of ways there's almost been um a movement by both sides towards each other the chinese are getting slightly better and we're getting slightly worse so is there some way we could use this to kind of start talking to the chinese I don't know, Eric, you you may be closest to that. What do you think?
4: Yeah, I I think uh, in in the past, uh, you know, we focused a lot on uh, IP protection uh, in terms of technology transfer, uh, which which, uh, China has made uh, some progress. uh, And and I think uh, they still got some way to go Uh, So we we also look at other areas of of potentially cooperation. A big thing is the climate change, right? The US government uh, has discussed with with the Chinese government about how to cooperate uh, in this area, which is a global challenge. And uh, when you deal with a global challenge, you need global solutions. And China has to be part of that uh, cooperation. So I think uh, you know, when you look at this new uh, bill, uh, if this is the final legislation, depending on how you define critical capabilities, does that mean that uh, the US companies would not be able to work with Chinese companies in terms of resolving these uh, climate change-related challenges, uh, which would not just simply be you know, Chinese problems, it's a world problem, so, so so, I think implementation of this uh, proposed bill uh, will be a huge challenge. How do you define these categories, right? And also how do you implement these, these rules for a, a interagency mechanism to review so many outbound investment proposals? That will be a bureaucratic nightmare. How do you do that? So, so that will definitely slow down business decisions by U.S. companies, which would not be good for our companies.
1: Nardi or Tilo, did you want to?
2: Oh, or Giovanna? No, seeing if anybody else unmutes. Um, Steve, I don't, I don't see a, I don't see a, a natural collaboration emerging from this. Uh, but one point worth making. Um, potentially is that um, going back to uh, uh, Giovanna's comments um, I, th- I think a, a really big um, motivation of all of this is to create create greater clarity uh, on supply chains and how much we rely on China at the moment and what some of the vulnerabilities are so I think one one potential p- really positive impact uh, could be that you know once once that regime is established and we have some more of that transparency, um, that regulators and policymakers will say, well, now we've, well, we've achieved the goal. We, we, we know, um, um, where uh, we are vulnerable or not, what we, what action we need to take, which then in turn will give, uh, us confidence, uh, to, um, um, um let some of the, um, uh, non-problematic, um, investment, which would be the majority I, I can imagine happen, uh, and, um, uh, and um, yeah, similar to Cepheus, right, we need a gatekeeper uh, to keep the bad stuff out, to let the majority of the good stuff happen. So I think ultimately that's, that's a, a, a positive impact that I'm seeing.
1: You know, it's like one of the things in our track two dialogues that we've been advocating for is an agreed definition of national security. So what we're, what we're getting is a enormously widening definition of national security, which is really not in the interests of the American people and or the Chinese people, but certainly not in the interests of the American people by creating duplication, by restricting innovation, by doing, by kind of blocking um, cooperation between the United States and China. My sister is being treated with a drug, a cancer drug developed by a joint venture between the United States and China called Beijing, I mean, a company called Beijing. I mean, we really want to block that? I mean, is this really bad for the American people? I I just listen and I kind of go, wow, I think we have to be careful, very careful where we draw those lines. And as we see legislation coming up, the Chinese government is well aware of all of this legislation, I assure you, I certainly get lots of calls about particular pieces of legislation and kind of why you guys really want to do this? Is this in the interests of the American people? But using legislation to then have the executive branch negotiate something productive. Just a thought, G- <laughs> was,
3: So Steve, you, you've mentioned a lot of thoughts. I think perhaps three observations. Uh, every piece of legislation, every negotiation always has some bad outcome. I have been practicing for 35 years. I have yet to come across, at least in the areas I practice in, a piece of legislation or regulation that doesn't have an unintended consequence. And so the the bigger question for policymakers and the executive branch is those uh, bad cases are bad. Uh, But in the grander scheme of things, is that an adequate justification? And I don't have an answer to this. Is that an adequate justification to, in essence, stop the regime? Uh, Clearly, the government and bipartisan Congresses for years have made the decision that, no, that is not sufficient. The second observation is, as I look at what this bill does, it's very interesting to me the parallels for policies that China has articulated in the last five years. The same concerns for supply chain, the same concerns for certain industry sectors. I don't just mean the made in China 2025, we're talking about their science and technology plans. We have also seen outbound investment restrictions, modifications of outbound investments that have been made, changes and all designed to meet Chinese national and economic security interests. So I think that to a certain extent, China is leading the effort to examine whether and how this may be appropriate. Now they are not only leading that effort, but they're taking actions on it. And I do think other countries are looking at it. And I think the third observation I'd like to make is there was a mention of FIRMA and impediments and obstacles. Uh, I, I can certainly appreciate that any kind of regulation is look like, looked at like an impediment and an obstacle, but it is part of working in um, a, a construct where there are limits to the actions that can be taken. And Firma, to use an example, had an express requirement for the president to negotiate multilaterally. And since FERMA went into effect, over 30 countries, have either examined and enhanced their regimes or created new regimes, and there's another 20 looking at them. So the enhanced information sharing and transparency that the US conducted, not just because of FIRMA, but because of broader geopolitical issues, has actually developed a framework for people to consider what should be done and other governments have stepped in. So to Thilo's point, we should be concerned if the U.S. is left all alone. But I think we have some examples that indicate if the U.S. continues to discuss with allies, partners, and China what is out there, I think we may actually find a meeting of the minds.
2: So, interesting. Steve, can um, I can I ask a, a question Sure. for, for Giovanna? Just uh, I'm picking up on something she said. Um, because I remember we had similar discussions uh, a few years ago when Firma first popped up, right? And um, I think two big concerns were, okay, what, what is that mandatory filing going to mean for businesses? And what is that mandatory filing and, and, and really tra- transaction volume going to mean for U.S. government and its resources and cap- capacity? Can you maybe give us a bit of a, 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 a first assessment of how all of this has played out how much has transaction cost increased for U.S. businesses, and how is U.S. government handling that um, mandatory filing process on a bureaucratic side?
3: Okay. So, I don't usually use subjective judgments, but let me just use one here. I think uh, the CFIUS process has worked quite well. The mandatory filings have not produced a deluge—you know, thousands and thousands of filings—they have not resulted. In um, impediments to transactions, nor have they really, in my experience, delayed the process. I think one originally unanticipated consequence was a slight miscalculation on the number of mandatory filings that actually went into a joint voluntary notice so that the process didn't end with the mandatory filing. But I think. If one were to look at those specific transactions with some degree of granularity, you could probably find some factors in there that wouldn't make it a surprise that that happened. So perhaps there, the assessment should have been the part of the companies and their counselors to perhaps suggest going into the joint filing first and bypassing the mandatory. But I do think that the process has worked, and I don't think it's been a deluge. And it's also resulted in the agencies getting additional resources. To to be responsive, so uh, the doomsday, in my humble view, uh, has not happened. So, um,
1: let's see. And oh, she's another from from um, Ken Jarrett. Why does USTR have the lead rather than Treasury?
0: Um, uh, I'll think uh, only the drafters of the bill can answer that definitively. But let me uh, give kind of two two perspectives. On the one hand, on the other hand, I'm really interested in, in my co-panelists' views here as well. So I think USTR is a, a small and very nimble agency. Uh, so uh, putting uh, and it's an agency that has some extensive experience with uh, negotiation, as we know. So putting. Um, them in charge of sending up this new process uh, could make a lot of sense from the perspective of wanting to move quickly and to have very little bureaucracy associated with it. I think that also presents a fairly obvious downside. It is a very small agency. Um, Compare it to the Department of Commerce, for example, which has thousands of people, obviously not all of them together, uh, assigned to a particular responsibility. But nevertheless, sort of the idea of the lift required to stand up uh, something of this complexity is is going to be a major consideration.
3: So I think that's an excellent question that you just asked because it has always been a bit of a conundrum that a national security focused uh, statute, whether you're talking about CFIUS and FIRMA and the Defense Production Act or this legislation, the control in essence resides in agencies whose equities are focused on commerce and finance Uh, so i i think ustr to nargiza's point does appear to be more nimble and i think it allows for broader jurisdiction by different committees on the hill which is important it gives more visibility Uh, but it is definitely a question to ask because there is a um, a resource constraint at USTR that would have to be addressed.
1: Well, certainly, there. You know, Treasury is getting a lot of new employees based upon the expansion of firma. They're they're on a hiring binge. the the The, the restriction is more the getting security clearances than anything else. They're really hiring a lot. Um, Henry Tillman. Says great data, Tila. We also track China inbound globally. Um, It increased from 135 billion in 2017-18 to 181 billion in 2021. Increases from Asia, including Singapore, um, the EU, the UK, had been you know shooting up. are we closing the door after the horses, the barn door after the horses have bolted?
2: Um, so first of all, um, we haven't really uh, talked about the, the 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 actual investment data and trends uh, in in great detail uh, today. Uh, but the numbers that uh, were just cited um, are uh, the official numbers uh, that are showing up in in China's uh, economic statistics. And um, I guess one caveat. Um, uh, probably uh, that is important is um, that those numbers are heavily impacted or distorted uh, by uh, some of the macroeconomic trends that we are seeing uh, with a very strong Chinese currency and relatively high interest rates. There was a lot of incentive uh, on behalf of uh, uh, globally operating treasurers and uh, and uh, investors to move money onshore into China over the past two years during the pandemic um, to uh, squeeze out a bit more return. So uh, you'll see a lot of that noise showing up in the official data. If you look at transactions data, um, the the trend is actually a lot less rosy, and uh, not surprisingly, right, given the zero COVID policy uh, and um, some of the slowing growth uh, and other headwinds that we're seeing. So if you look at transactions data that we're tracking, we're actually seeing quite a bit of decline uh, in, in 2020 and 2021, which which is what, what you would expect in, in the current environment, um, and especially a big decline in, in uh, mergers and acquisitions into China. Um, we're seeing big companies that are serving, as Eric mentioned, Chinese consumers uh, in, 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 uh, in, in those sectors that already have a, an established uh, footprint in China, we continue to see those expanding, reinvesting, um, but uh, uh, it, it's become a, lo- a lot less vibrant over the past two or three years. And um, um, uh, you can see uh, our preliminary, pre- preliminary numbers in the report that we just posted uh, on the website today uh, on US, FDI and China. And that has come down again in 2021 based on the numbers that we're seeing.
1: Eric, you're... you're um... Your members are pretty optimistic and enthusiastic about continuing to invest. Can you talk a little about those numbers and your survey that, that you did?
4: Sure. Uh, one caveat, obviously, our uh, surveys uh, you know focus certainly on China-based uh, executives of, of American companies, right? So there is maybe be a slightly different perspective than the headquarters in the US. Um, but uh, uh, with that, uh, certainly consistently, uh, w- we see our members uh, doing very well financially. Uh, you know, overwhelmingly, uh, I mean, at least over eighty percent of them are profitable. Uh, and then seventy-eight uh, percent, based on our latest uh, uh, survey done late last year, seventy-eight percent of our members uh, had a positive or slightly. Positive outlook of the next five years. So that was uh, my interpretation. Was you know it compared with the previous survey, it was uh, you know certainly two different administrations. The current administration uh, that was last year. So the numbers were more, more positive. and and when you look at uh, the how they serve you know serve this market, I alluded to this number earlier. You know, over half of our members, you know, 53% of our members actually produce and sell to this market. So, China for them is a very important uh, end user market, consumer market in particular. So, I think uh, one uh, thing that uh, has not been uh, communicated well uh, in the US is that, uh, that in fact, this market. Is, is very innovative and uh, a lot of US companies here are trying to tap into the, uh, the human resources here. And, and that's why you see these uh, R&D centers set up by US companies here. And they co-produce these products with their uh, companies here, right? So US may have a technology And, but how to commercialize that technology and China is a great place to do that because the market is moving very, very fast, particularly based on a digital kind of platform. So I think uh, we need to emphasize that fact that uh, US companies here are here really not only to transfer technology, but more importantly, they uh, commercialize products here and then they have more mature market uh, products and they will sell into the China market, but also to the rest of the world. And that, uh, uh, that factor, I think, uh, at least perception-wise is not well-known in the US. Great points. Um,
1: Karen Sutter asks about transparency. Um, could the panelists discuss transparency issues with regard to deals and transactions that occur through private equity and venture capital. What gaps do you see? How does the law address those
2: issues?
3: So uh, that's an excellent question. And there is no one law that brings visibility into that because there's currently no requirements similar to what we find for public companies that report through the SEC on certain legal risks and material transactions. Private equity and venture capital world doesn't doesn't have similar requirements. So at this point, visibility generally comes when these groups publish press releases or the companies themselves that have been invested in or bought uh, make public announcements or sometimes when they engage with customers or they engage with the US government in a commercial relationship, the investments come to light, but uh, right now there is no specific mechanism for visibility uh, into that area. Argiza, uh,
0: So I, I agree with that. Um, I think uh, it is certainly possible and we have in, in-house uh, experience collecting the, these data on venture capital transactions, but when it comes to private equity, uh, that I think has the least visibility. It's been uh, it's difficult to see transactions and some actions, so that's the one uh, where we see the least of uh, visibility.
1: since private equity is just capital, what's the need to to have a lot of transparency? I guess would be my question. What's the need to have filings? it's it's capital. It's just money.
3: yeah, so that's a very interesting way to look at it because Private equity establishes a fund and there are funds of funds that contributed and funds and funds and funds of funds and they establish all these constructs. And what is lost in the noise sometimes is as the money transfers and people get rights for the investments. It doesn't have to be a board seat or an observer seat. You might get a seat on the intellectual property committee of the target that's being invested in. You have other transfers and engagements that occur that come as the price of that investment. And so the visibility that's needed is into that aspect of it. Uh, and um, and I think that there, it's very challenging to really find out what the impact of the, or influence of the investment is. So I'm not Talking sure. Talking about private equity
1: going into China. So yes. we're worried that we're going to get a seat on the intellectual property committee? I don't understand
3: that. Well, so let let me talk. Usually when private equity, at least in my experience, when private equity invests uh, anywhere, they will put someone who is conversant with the business, conversant with the economic situation, or conversant in the products and technology of the business into which they're investing. And uh, that makes perfect business sense to want to monitor your investment and ensure you're getting a good return. A lot of times there are exchanges that occur, that result in either transfers of technologies or the development of other relationships that bring in parties, Steve, that were not originally anticipated. And so the tentacles just expand and that's why it becomes important to have some visibility. Now, you may not learn everything, but there needs to be a start somewhere.
2: Yeah, and maybe Steve, just some additional perspective and I'm, I'm just an observation uh, um, based on the, uh... Requests that I'm getting. Um, there is a lot of um, um, discussion within uh, USG, uh, uh, especially with regard to venture capital, and to what extent um, some of these uh, um, situations may actually constitute a transfer of critical US capability, right? You have a venture capitalist, uh, a seasoned tech entrepreneur that has semiconductor, or whatever quantum computing experience, goes to China. Um, with U.S. capital, brings a bunch of engineers with him or her, sets up a, a fund and, and a company over there, fi- finances a bunch of startups. I think that is certainly something that the national, community, uh, national co- uh, security community is looking at very actively. And there's a bunch of very good reporting out there in recent weeks and months that shed some light on some of the situations and players involved um, that everybody can look up. Dimitri Sevestop-
1: Sevestopoulos asks, what could the Biden administration do in addition to whatever ends up in the legislation, whoever wants to take that? So what can the executive branch do or President Biden do?
3: Well, there is, there is the executive authority to invoke IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which does allow the president to take actions in the financial world, not just on the export import world. So the president has some executive authority to put in um, a temporary ban or prohibition on certain activity on the basis of national security. We saw some of this with uh, the original order in the Trump administration, uh, Executive Order 13959, which established limits on the investments that could be made in securities of Chinese communist military companies that were on exchanges in the US. So there is some executive authority that exists. Now it would have to be predicated on a statutory basis and the most flexible regime happens to be IEPA, but there are limits to that uh, as the administrations have discovered because uh, companies have brought lawsuits for those types of actions but there is some flexibility for them to try something with executive orders.
0: And I yeah. think from the supply chain perspective, uh, we have to also keep in mind the ongoing efforts that the administration already has in the multilateral or bilateral space, negotiating the TTC with the EU, for example, a two plus two dialogue with Japan. But there is a lot of focus within a lot of open developed economies right now on ensuring supply chain security.
1: There's a lot of talk about the cooperation, but what appears to me to be happening is the US government is acting without the other governments acting with us. So when we delist Chinese companies, but they can continue to be listed in other places, we are doing nothing but punishing the Americans who do the listings, who work on the listings, punishing NASDAQ, and and, uh, the New York Stock Exchange. So the need to coordinate this with other countries, or in effect, you're playing whack-a-mole that you were cracking down on this one place, which in this case is New York, NASDAQ and NYSE are both here, and we're not doing anything about the other stock exchanges. And in fact, we can't do anything about the other stock exchanges because one of them happens to be in Hong Kong. So unless if we're going to tell all the major banks you can't work in Hong Kong anymore we're doing very little but injuring ourselves and that's the great risk in a lot of this legislation that if we don't put the contingency in that this has to be multilateral. Um, And if it's not multilateral we shouldn't be doing it, because then. We're going to create a lot of business for lawyers who are going to structure things so they don't touch the United States. There is no nexus with the United States, but they're in the Cayman Islands or in the Channel Islands or in a place that doesn't have these restrictions. But without the multilateral approach, we're just punishing Americans, which um, which is a little scary to me. Any final comments? Because we're running, I think, very close to the end. Thilo, anything you want to add?
2: Well, add? I guess one 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 final comment here is, um, um, again, tr- trying to look back at the, the firma process. Um, I think, um, aside from the, the letter of the law, um, um, part of the motivation here probably also is to... Um, um, rattle cages a little bit, um, and um, what that firm process really has done, it has forced uh, American tech companies, and um, I'm, I'm based on the West Coast here, uh, when I moved here initially five, six years ago, nobody was uh, thinking about CFIUS, and nobody was thinking about national security, and uh, everything was rosy, and uh, China was the growth story, that has changed dramatically over the past five years, which was partially due to that public discussion around FERMA. And I think um, one of the benefits that we might see over the next few months as this is unfolding is that some of these discussions may trickle down into the U.S. business community and um, that there may be um, some of that same um, process of thinking a bit more about supply chain diversification and um, and to what extent uh, critical inputs are being sourced out of China. Um, So Maybe just as a final thought, I think that might be another positive thing that could come out of this process, even if we don't see uh, this bill ultimately pass or uh, if it should take a different trajectory. By the way, Nar-
1: Nar- Nar- the, the, is financial investment under cont- portfolio investment gonna be included in the act?
0: Uh, not as it's currently drafted. It focuses on transfers of productive capacity.
1: Eric, any any final comments from uh, Shanghai?
4: Just to uh, follow up on that point about financial investment. I think uh, Tilo uh, in their report uh, uh, mentioned this possibility of just becoming passive investors in China uh, versus active. And I think that would not be good for the U.S. We over the years, U.S. companies have actively participating in this market. Uh, and then China has become a very strategic, strategically important market for U.S. companies. So if we're talking about pro- totally becoming passive investors and, and leaving China, that will be uh, not in the best interest of our companies.
1: Thank you all so much for kind of making for a very, very interesting detailed discussion. I'm glad we had the full 90 minutes because it required every minute. I certainly learned a lot from this panel and I hope our audience did too. Eric, thank you so much for getting up early in the morning to be with us. Tilo, thanks for deferring your dinner. Nargiza and Giovanna, thank you for joining us this late. But great to see everybody and look forward to our next one. In the meantime, happy year of the tiger.
3: Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Thank you. For more interviews,
0: videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.